listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I got to experience a little bit of nirvana this weekend. Um, and that was watching my uh, one and a half year old daughter get attacked by around six puppies. I mean, pos- positively attacked. Um, they just went, they just thought she was the greatest thing. And they, they jumped all over her, and then they just started licking her and everything. And she got to one of those spaces of laughter that wasn't just, ha ha, this is funny, but, oh my God, Daddy, what's happening? <laughs> and I just sat there and watched. I got none of it on film. It just, because that's, I'm bad that way. But just to be able to be in the presence of that kind of unbridled joy, so powerful. Uh, and a great reminder as to why we're here. Why we're here, not only in this room, but in this life. Uh, It's to take care of each other, to take care of ourselves, to take care of this earth, this community, to take care of it all. And there's an amazing responsibility that kind of comes with that. And that can, for egos, egos can really bristle at that idea that, what do you mean, I I got enough to take care of. But this work is ultimately about not just giving and not just receiving, but there's a third component that goes with this called being. And as Cade was getting uh, nibbled on by these little terrier puppies, uh, she was so in the moment. She was so just being, so to speak the peals of laughter that were coming from her. The, uh, 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 and for all I know, the puppies were having a pretty damn good time too. But it was just a really, really powerful reminder that not only is there a purpose to all this, um, but there's always, there's always more. There's always more to uncover in our experience. And it reminded me very, very, uh, very, very much of uh, a moment I had uh, that I wanted to share with you here uh, in relationship to practice, in relationship of not just having some intellectual understanding of what's going on, but actually having a physical realization, a physical uh, uh, connection with what this practice is. As committed as we might be, Meditation is tough on most of us. Practicing stillness is the physical act of reaching toward the infinite that creates an opening into the awareness beyond the boundary of our minds. Enlightenment is a slip or fall that fundamentally changes the way we meet our world, while our stillness practice throws banana peels all over the floor. Enlightenment is an accident, as we say in Zen. Meditation makes us accident-prone. Becoming accident-prone causes intense stress to the mind and the body. 
In many cases, our minds do what they can to avoid stress during meditation by sabotaging the experience. This sabotage happens in any number of ways. Perhaps sleepiness is brought on. Maybe physical pain shows up repeatedly, or even constant mental noise might flood our experience. Regardless, letting patience inform our sitting can help lessen the impact of all these impediments. Some time ago, a group of senior monks at Zen Center were sharing lunch and rather animatedly discussing problems they were facing in their stillness practice. A friend of mine and I sat at the adjacent table and listened, amazed that people who had embraced a practice for decades still had difficulty on their cushions. We chewed our food quietly so that we wouldn't miss any of the conversation. My knees still kill me every morning, said one middle-aged man. Wait until your hips go, responded a smiling woman who must have been in her late 60s. I still, I still deal with intense grief, said another monk. It always surprises me when the tears come up over the loss of my son 20 years ago, and it still crushes me every once in a while. I couldn't believe it. After all this time, all of these monks still had to deal with the small self-issues such as physical and emotional discomfort. Was there any hope for a guy like me who had been sitting regularly for a comparatively short time of only five or six years? My friend then wisely pointed out in between bites of green salad and brown rice, but they don't seem caught by any of it. She was right. They didn't seem to be the least bit worried. And so that's what we do. It's not about getting fully cooked. It's not about hitting an endpoint. It's not about realizing omega. You know, it's not, it's about a process of meeting what is, whatever it is, in whatever capacity, and doing so in a way where we don't flinch, as we've discussed in the last few weeks, where we just allow for ourselves to exist in the white-hot fire of that intensity, whatever it is. Maybe it's desire. Maybe you desire escape. Maybe you desire enlightenment. Maybe you desire another person. Maybe you desire freedom. Think about this. Try practicing with that desire. Just be right with it. Let the desire consume you without moving, without doing anything to help that desire along. Just be right with the desire. What you'll find is, especially if you have the intention that even if it kills me, I'm not moving. If you have that intention, even if it kills me, I'm not moving. And you can be right there with that desire. What you'll recognize is that it won't destroy you. It won't kill you. It won't knock you off your rocker or your cushion. You'll be just fine. And the moment that happens, there's a spontaneous weakening of its grip. It spontaneously opens a little bit. And we start recognizing that we have a choice. Remember that ad... Um, I think it was about Lay's potato chips. You, you, you can't eat just one. Remember that one? You ever tried it? You can eat just one. I was, I was so taken with that ad. I was about seven years old. And they said, you know, you can't eat just one. And I was thinking, okay, well, that's a dare. 
And uh, and I remember <laughs> I remember eating just one and thinking to myself, "Damn, this is really good. I sure would like another one." Not going to do it. And what a gift that little moment was for me as a very young person to realize that no, you don't. You 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 can you can actually have a a, a beautiful choice wherever you are. So whether what's arising for you is desire or want or fear or whatever it is. Maybe it's joy. Let it be there. Meet it with all that you all that you are. But have the intention even if it kills you not to either grasp it or avoid it. Just be right there with it. Let it undo its own knots that it has tied by being there with it as opposed to standing in opposition to it or indulging it. Does this kind of make sense? So tonight when you're sitting, and we'll sit for about 30 minutes or so, just watch whatever feelings come up. Be in your body tonight as best you can. What do you desire? What do you want? What is deep? What is that deep longing, that deep pull? See if you can kind of be with it. Maybe you'll find that you're frustrated. Oh, there isn't anything deep coming up at all. This is BS. I'm, I'm bored and I, God, why am I here? Be right there with that. That frustration, that resistance that you're feeling. Whatever it happens to be, just get right next to it and don't move. Even if it kills you. Okay. Having said that, if you really need to move, please be my guest. You can move. It's all right. Okay. We'll wait next week for enlightenment. But uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> uh, it's it. Honestly, this is not about um, excruciating pain. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> don't make that mistake. Okay. But it is about doing our best to be really, really clear while everything's going on. If you find that you really want to move, for instance. Try breathing five times into that, not only that desire, but the discomfort you might feel in your body. If it's moving just because you're annoyed or it's habit, man, what a gold mine that is. Just be there right with, wow, I really want to move. Huh. That's interesting. Be right there with it. Study it. So when we bring stillness into our bodies, when we begin to recognize that which does not move, uh, and it is uh, a felt experience, we start developing space around whatever emotional or physical sensation we may have. So if we can look at emotions, as I sometimes say, emotions are when mental activity settles into the body. When mental activity settles into the body, when thoughts meet the physical, emotions are experienced.
and emotions are great. They're marvelous. They're divine expressions of the infinite, of spirit, just like thoughts. They're not a problem. Feelings are not a problem. Our addiction to our feelings is problematic because then ego begins to create stories around these feelings. I want more of that. I want less of that. I want a little bit of that once in a while. Right? And this allows the ego to manage our experiential reality. It allows the ego, or what we can call the small self, or the separate sense of self, to begin to control everything. And where this teaching, actually sacred teaching in general, I, I have found that very little variance here when we start getting at the core of what uh, you know all mystics, ancient and contemporary, are talking about. We are going into that space between our thoughts, the space in our bodies that is between emotional upheaval. And when we can do this, when we can start to, when we can start to see this, this still space kind of open up, and some of you may actually have that experiential moment every once in a while, either in here or while you're sitting at home, um, where there's just kind of this ah, quietude in between you know, thoughts. It's as if the monkey mind suddenly just stops swinging and it's just hanging there. <sighs> and then it realizes, my God, I'm not a monkey unless I start swinging. And it starts going back, brachiates, you know, all around, all around the mind. Well, um, as the mind goes, so goes the body, and vice versa. If there is a, an utterly still body and it is met with awareness, uh, we can have a still mind. If we have an utterly still mind, the body can meet that as well. And when that happens, when those two things miraculously begin to meet, what do we have? We have this moment where stillness comes through us. We don't apprehend stillness. You can't hunt stillness down. Your, e your ego would love to think that this is true because then the ego, remember, goes after everything that moves. It's a hunter, okay? And it's, it's absolutely possessed by anything that moves, all right? It's always looking for it. When stillness occurs, the ego has no place to go. And when stillness is continually met, even when ego does everything it can to kind of, you know, rattle, rattle things up, stir things up, mix things up, make movement once again become the, you know, the, uh, the dominating force of one's experience. This mystery begins to unfold. Stillness is far more vast than movement. There would be no sound without silence. It's the same, I'm saying the same exact thing. 
and I'm not trying to get all heady on you, I'm just trying to say that when we begin to take very seriously this approach and we begin to work very, very seriously with this intention to let stillness through, we find that the, the fire of who we always have been manifests. We start recognizing this is, isn't about me getting something. I'm not going to acquire anything. I'm not going to force anything on anybody else. You know, I go to this meditation group on Mondays. You should go because you need it, you know, type thing. We start, that type of stuff begins to kind of settle down and we just begin to walk the experience. I was going to say walk our talk, but it doesn't quite fit, you know? We begin to walk our, we begin to move informed by silence. We begin to walk our stillness. <laughs> yeah? So all sorts of stuff can get in the way of that. I mean, it's easy enough to talk about it, easy enough to intellectualize it, easy enough maybe to experience it, you know, on Monday night somewhere around 8.10. Um, when the, you know, the body is still behaving or something like that. But this really is um, an opportunity for us all to become living reminders of stillness. And that doesn't mean we just check out and start clicking the TiVo, uh, that we just stay on the couch, or that we you know, just go home and start drinking all the wine in the house or whatever. It's not about that at all, actually. Our life becomes a meditation. As long as we can define meditation as exposing ourselves continually, constantly, and tenderly to what is really going on. When we refuse to shy away from truth, and I'm not talking about your truth or your version of truth or my truth or my version of truth, I'm talking about what's really happening. And that's something every one of us can do. There's nothing special, really, about facing your truth other than the fact it will radically alter your life. Ha! <laughs> so, I want to tease this idea of truth apart real quickly. Um, because uh, one of the things we, we talk about sometimes is how it's separated into kind of a small truth and a big truth. There are two versions. Two versions of truth. And in the small realm of truth, what we tend to look, like, we look at rather is kind of this shallow, uh, superficial, sometimes call it conventional truth. Um, I have a friend, I, I absolutely love him dearly, but he always refers to it as the real world, you know, right? Is that not just gorgeous? <laughs> that sound is just... The universe going, ah!
I just feel so lucky sometimes. <laughs> not going anywhere with that, but just, wow, huh? Anyway, we have two kinds of truth, the shallow and then the deep. And so for the shallow, we have real world, right? Conventional. And then for the deep truth, we have what we might call ultimate reality, what we might call the unmanifest, the uncreated. In the shallow, we might have separation. In the deep, we might have a unified singularity. The shallow kind of truth might elicit this idea of ego. The deep truth might elicit this idea of being. When I say being, I'm talking about what's behind the mask that the ego builds. All the stories that the ego authors and throws on our mask, if you think about it, your mask is all ego's creation to protect you from the infinite coming out. Your personality is nothing other than all your stories. And when we go, we have that kind of truth, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not complete. When we add to that this idea of being, then we have something that's much more complete. Just like when we look at separation and atomization in our world. I'm in here, everything else is out there. And we add to that limited view the deep singularity, knowing full well that both are true. What does that allow for? That allows for this stillness I'm talking about to come through us quite spontaneously, quite effortlessly. So, this idea that I'm talking about here, I'm pretty much looking at two different, um, if you can imagine, a tightrope. And the tightrope is the path. And on the one hand, you can fall into the shallow end of things. And on the other hand, you can fall into the deep end of things. They're both part of the pool. Okay? One is not necessarily better than the other, except that the deep truth, the ultimate truth, allows for both itself and its junior to occur. Does this make sense? Okay? So when we can, when we can expand to that space that's between our thoughts, when we can uncover what's behind the mask, and we can let the infinite out and then receive it all at once. We've got both truths happening simultaneously. And this is Christ consciousness. This is Buddha. This is what is holy in each of you coming out quite effortlessly. And the reason why, ultimately, we're doing this is to make sure that that can be shared. This is not about your enlightenment, your peace. That's shallow. <coughs> this is about 
your enlightenment, your peace, as well as everyone else's in the process. Cheers. A few quick announcements. Uh, it's wonderful to see some new faces here tonight. Do we want to have Q&A? Do <laughs> 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 you want to talk to people? <laughs> 24, 24 is on. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> that was awesome. Do, do, well, do you want to go first? Do you want to ask first? <laughs> uh, that was cute. So can I put your announcements off for, let's say, about seven, eight minutes? Is that cool? All right. Yeah. I feel so lucky. <laughs> uh, any questions? Yeah, Kim. I'm not sure how to ask this question. I'll try. Um, so, the Zen saying that um, one hand clapping. Or what is the sound of one hand clapping, that koan? Yeah. Right. Or the, what you said that you have to have silence in order to have sound. Mm -hmm. um, do you have to have the, um, the Christ thinking or Buddhist thinking that you spoke of, in order to have that, do you have to have uh, more than one person to witness that? Uh, because I guess it would manifest in action at some point. Yeah, it's a shortcut. Having others in this process is just a shortcut. You could probably do it on your own, but what would that be worth? Would it be like um, having silence but not the sound or the sound not the sound? I see what you're saying. Yeah, it can become very unbalanced actually when the practice becomes about us, right? Because then what it is more or less is the ego trying to enlighten itself. Yeah, so having others there. I mean, in the, uh, the Lotus Sutra, it says only a Buddha with a Buddha achieves enlightenment, right? right? Yeah. And so, it all, I mean, we're never not in relationship, if you think about it. Even if we're, whether we're single romantically, whether we're single, or we decide to, you know, seal ourselves in a, uh, you know, Ted Kaczynski-like hut, you know, and just, you know, be a hermit, we're still connected. It just goes back to that same question um, that you sometimes talk about in that it's easier to be quiet and be silent and feel that spaciousness when I'm sitting singularly with my eyes closed mm -hmm. um, in meditation. But when I go out into the world and I start doing my work and interacting with people and just doing day-to-day -day stuff, it's really hard to have that spaciousness. Right, right. That habitual inertia carries us. It's, it's, it's literally habitual. We're addicted to it. And what the stillness on the cushion allows for you to do is break the addiction, even if it's just for a little while. Okay? And then what we can do is begin to try to practice. So, like, for instance, tomorrow, pick one area where you want to practice mindfulness. Just one area. Maybe it's when you go up and get a cup of coffee. Maybe it's just on the phone. 
you know, and you, f you bring yourself back to your breath or you bring yourself back to what's going on actually in your body. Let your body guide you in this, in this work because it usually points us in exactly the right direction for stillness. And if we can come at any conversation or if we can come at any, any situation consciously from that place of stillness, then we are doing, we, we, are, we are manifesting the unmanifest consciously. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about, um, I have a different word for it, but when you talk about um, meeting what is, mm -hmm. and, and re really is not the story that the ego makes, mm -hmm. um, meeting that, in, I think of it in terms of accepting in, in the present, in the now, what is accepting mm -hmm. it, and that's my ego accepting it. My <coughs> ego is not trying to change it. My ego is not thinking about the future or the past, or you know, has some manipulation that it wants something it wants to achieve, like that addiction to a feeling. So my ego will try and create, mm -hmm. you know. And when I don't do that, or when, at least when I notice myself doing that, I. I think that that's really important to at least notice that I'm doing it. That I have a choice. Right. And um, but I think that all this work has a lot to do with um, the ego being present in the present, not in the past, and not in the future. The ego cannot be in the present. Why? Because it needs the past and the future in order to survive. So if I'm really present and aware, then my ego is just like on off or something. You know what that sounds like? <laughs> do, do you know? What, do you know? And do you know exactly what that sounds like? No. What? One hand clapping. What? <laughs> <laughs> when you are totally in the present. When you are no longer. When you aren't bound by memories, okay, and you're not bound by plans. Right. All right. There's only this. Right. And in just this, what do we have? Are you saying one hand clapping? Yeah. Well, I don't make that connection. But the I won't make that connection because the I wants to make connections. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Right? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Yeah. I've been clear on the statement. You see the Buddha on the trail killing him. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so you want? I would like you to explain it to me. Want my interpretation? I love that. Yeah, this work is about murder. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the Kaczynski thing. Yeah. <laughs> the 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 way I've always found that to be the most helpful. If you if you meet a Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. The way I always found that to be most helpful. And there are all sorts of great interpretations that I think are really unsound, in when you relate them to you know the. The, the core of the teachings. Um, if you see, if you see an enlightened being, you're mistaken because there's no you and there's no them. It's just this, right? So in other words, if you perceive someone out there to be awake while you are not awake, that's the delusion. Hence the term, if you see someone outside of you, kill them. Or if you see, in other words, there's only this deep singularity. Okay? Now having said that, there's a, a, a concomitant to that, that little phrase that I think is really important to look at. And that is that if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him, 
and then make sure he doesn't die. Make sure that you don't kill him. Because the Buddha is you. You are that awareness. Right? That in you which is looking for Buddha is Buddha already. And that's just the Buddhist interpretation of it. You know, we could do that in any number of different, different texts. We can look at that in the same way. It's like there is nothing outside of your awareness that is not fully awake, that is not fully you, that is not true, that is not both shallow and deep truths, that is not that middle way, that is not open. But there is also this little thing that is so petrified of that realization that it will do anything it can to make sure that never happens. And it'll create all sorts of stories. It'll author all these scripts and perform on the stage of mind with this amazing conviction. And it's incredibly, incredibly convincing to an unknowing audience member. Right? But the knowing audience member is actually what is true in you and what is true in me. It's this witnessing awareness that we get to employ whenever we meditate, whenever we're on the phone tomorrow with somebody or wherever we're in our car. It's just being absolutely clear about what's going on internally. And guess where Buddha is in that moment? Where is Buddha not in that moment? Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>